You know, the ultimate story of the Bible is one of divine reversal, especially as you look at the end of the story when God reverses the curse and there's new heavens and a new earth. God used the horror of the cross for our ultimate good and the empty tomb to prove that he's a God of divine reversal. And he uses many things in our life that look to be not good and evil. He uses them, he turns them around for good. More on that today as we dive into Esther 9 on Walk in Truth. These are the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. Before we get started with today's message, we wanna let you know that this is a listener-supported ministry. Call with your gift at 844-48-TRUTH. That's 844-48-TRUTH. Now, here's Pastor Michael. Please hear me. What God often does in nations and sometimes in individual lives is a nation can become a vehicle by which God executes his wrath. He did it to his own people. He used Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, a foreign pagan king, to discipline his own people. See, God will use the natural things on the chessboard, if you will, to move his will. He wanted Saul to execute his will against Amalek. Saul refused, and we fast forward to the time of Esther later, and what's happened now? A man from that lineage of that king has risen up against Israel and he wants to annihilate them all. That's what God wanted avoided. So now the people of Israel in Persia finished the job that Saul failed to complete. And by not taking the plunder or the spoil, even though the the command said they could, they are in essence, reversing the failure of Saul. Everybody with me? That's how this this weaves together throughout your Bible. They have every right to take it, but they don't take it because they see themselves as simply executing God's wrath against God's enemies. And at the center of this is the Agagite enemy or the Amalekites represented by Haman's family and his 10 sons. And this is brutal, but this is what happens. In ancient warfare, if you as a leader were captured and killed, they would kill your family as well. You say, why, man, that's brutal. Because they didn't want one of your ancestors to rise up and try to get revenge. They didn't want a coup to come from your own family, so they would destroy everybody so that there would be no possibility of that happening. It's brutal, but it's the way they did things. And so they won't take the plunder. Can you think of some people in the uh, Old Testament who took the spoil when they weren't supposed to and got themselves in deep trouble? Uh, Remember Achan in the uh, book of Joshua? The people of Israel go and they devastate Jericho and God's with them. And God says, everything's under the ban. You are simply my instrument to bring divine wrath to the Canaanite peoples who sacrifice their children on the altars, who burn incense to foreign gods, who are evil. You are going to be my tool. It's not that you're so great, Israel, but you're going to be my divine tool. So Israel goes in there, but Achan sees a nice robe and some silver and gold. There's songs about it, silver and gold. It's just shiny and attractive. And there was a cool robe and it fit him. It was the right size. And so he went, "Uh, it won't be a problem. Uh, I'll take these couple of things. 
And he took them and he took the gold and then the children of Israel went to Ai and they should have wiped him out and Ai beat him up and devastated him and Joshua goes to the Lord and goes, Lord, what happened? Why did we lose? And God says, uh, come into my office. There's sin in the camp. What do you mean, Lord? Well, people took stuff for themselves and they weren't supposed to personally profit from this because you're just my instrument of divine wrath. And some people have taken some stuff and Achan was found out. And let me just say, it did not end well for Achan or his family. Do you remember Gehazi? Uh, what is it, Naaman, the Syrian leader? goes to the prophet and he, the prophet tells him, you know, go ahead and dip in the Jordan River and uh, he finally obeys and then Gehazi, you know, the, the Syrian leader wants to offer money to the prophet for the healing and he says, no, I don't want your money. Gehazi, the assistant of the prophet, rides back and goes, hey, uh, you still got that money? <laughs> because uh, the prophet changed his mind. He wants it now. He's a little short on his bills, you know, and things are a little tight, you know, prophet, and, and all this is not always the best prophet. Anyway, and so can I have some of that stuff and I'll bring it back to him? And he takes it and he ends up in trouble. And the prophet says, wasn't my spirit with you when you were going there? What were you thinking? Remember when Abram wins the battle to rescue Lot and the king of Sodom comes up to Abram and offers him some stuff. And Abram says to the king of Sodom, he says, I will not take anything from your hand lest the wicked city of Sodom be the source of my prosperity, paraphrase. Uh, one writer says, this example of Abram refusing to take booty from the king of Sodom sets an example or a precedent for, for God's people. I don't want dirty money or anything or you to be able to say, you are the one that enriched me. No. Well, I think there's a reversal going on in that Israel could have taken it, but did not. And on that day, the number of those who were killed in Susa, the capital, was reported to the king. So we have the number in the previous verse, uh, 500, uh, actually several verses ago in verse 6. And now the report comes to the king of all those who were killed. And the king said to Queen Esther, verse 12, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in Susa, the capital. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? If that's what they did in the capital, what else? Now he says, now what's your petition? It shall even be granted you. What is your further request? It shall be done. Now it doesn't say that she asked him for anything. Was it her body language? I don't know. Why does the king at this point ask her for what she wants? Has he fallen under the dread of the Jews as well? Is he going, well, maybe I should give her whatever she wants because these people are pretty powerful. I don't know. But he asked her, what more do you want? He can see that obviously Israel is effectively devastating the enemy. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, 13, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today. Remember, the edict was only for one day. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. 
And all God's people said of Esther, what's up, girl? Really? What's happened to sweet little Esther? Depicted in all the caricatures and the Sunday school books and the movies as this little, you know, slip of a girl who, by God's grace, ended up in the Persian leadership. Now she's asking for people to be impaled on poles and stuff like that? Why? Well, one writer says, literally, this is overkill. That was an attempt at a joke, but uh, anyway. Overkill, get it. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> she asked for an extra day of fighting, but then she asked for the ten sons of Haman, maybe, get this, to be hung on the same pole that he made for Mordecai. Do you know when they would hang people on a tree, and this, is, this comes out in Scripture, it would depict them as being under the curse of God. Uh, do you remember when Saul and Jonathan are killed? The Philistines in Beit Shan, I think it's 1 Samuel 31, put them up on a wall in one of their cities. Do you know why they did that? Because they wanted to announce that they had victory over the Israelites. And even, they would say, even by extension over their God. And so why does Esther want them up there? I think to make a statement that they're under the curse of God, which is fitting for the scene that we've painted with a long-standing holy war, if you will. There's a tradition, and if it's correct, it's this incident where the people of the land, nicknamed uh, Hadassah, who's Esther's real name in Hebrew, Esther, alluding to Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess of love and war. We don't know if that's certain, but that's what one tradition says. And so she asked for the extra day, and she also asked that the sons be displayed, the sons of Haman. Now, when the 10 sons of Haman were killed, what happened to the threat, the ancient threat against Israel? It was dealt with. The enemy was dealt with. And putting them on display, and of course they had already been killed, would be a way of saying, if you try to mess in this area again, it's not going to go well for you. When the Roman uh, domination of the world occurred, the reason that they crucified people on public roads was to say, if you turn against the Roman Empire, this is what will happen to you. And men would, would be crucified on crosses. Sometimes they would be on the crosses for a week, dying there. And there is evidence that when Jesus was crucified, and I've mentioned this to many of you in the past, it wasn't up on a hill, that he literally would have been on a street down below Calvary or Golgotha in front of a, a mountainside that has what looks like a skull, as though death were mocking him. And if you walked by that street, the cross would be about the level of this pulpit as you walk by doing your shopping. There would be people on crosses that close to you. You could just look up and see them dying. And the written charge would be over their head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. That was the charge written against him. But if you had done something else and you were crucified, the two thieves on his right and his left had the charge written over them as well. This is what Rome did. A public display. 
And the Jewish leadership said, see, he can't be the Messiah. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Did you know God's name is not mentioned once in the book of Esther, but his fingerprints are all over it? The famous verse, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this, tells us that Mordecai sensed God moving in the darkest of times. This is a story about ordinary, everyday people taking a stand and becoming vessels through which God saved a nation. The story is filled with satire and seriousness, but it ends with celebration as God turns things around for good as only He can. Get your copy of Pastor Michael Lance's teaching of the entire book of Esther for such a time as this. Yours as a thank you for your financial gift of $30 or more to Walk in Truth. Visit walkintruth.com today. That's walkintruth.com. Remember, you can listen to today's program and previous ones whenever you want on our website, walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. Now back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. Now, when the 10 sons of Haman were killed, what happened to the threat, the ancient threat against Israel? It was dealt with. The enemy was dealt with. And putting them on display, and of course they had already been killed, would be a way of saying, if you try to mess in this area again, it's not going to go well for you. When the Roman uh, domination of the world occurred, the reason that they crucified people on public roads was to say, if you turn against the Roman Empire, this is what will happen to you. And men would, would be crucified on crosses. Sometimes they would be on the crosses for a week dying there. And there is evidence that when Jesus was crucified, and I've mentioned this to many of you in the past, it wasn't up on a hill. That he literally would have been on a street down below Calvary or Golgotha in front of a, a mountainside that has what looks like a skull, as though death were mocking him. And if you walked by that street, the cross would be about the level of this pulpit as you walk by doing your shopping. There would be people on crosses that close to you. You could just look up and see them dying. And the written charge would be over their head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. That was the charge written against him. But if you had done something else and you were crucified, the two thieves on his right and his left had the charge written over them as well. This is what Rome did. A public display. And the Jewish leadership said, See, he can't be the Messiah. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. But Jesus couldn't come down from the cross because he was under the curse of God for you, brothers and sisters. He was dying there, taking the wrath of Almighty God, fighting the ultimate holy war in our stead. And there as he sheds his blood and dies, he's being put on public display to show you God's love, but God's justice. And so the king commanded that it should be done so, and an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. It sounds harsh, but this is the ancient world. And the extra day she asked for 
we're going to see there was a good reason. The Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 14th day of the month, that's the next day, uh, uh, Adar, and killed 300 men. There were still people who wanted their demise in Susa, that's the capital, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. We're reminded once again. Now we have 800 people who were killed in Susa to show you how many enemies there were. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, I think 127, assembled to defend their lives. Notice they, were, notice they were in a defensive posture. If you're struggling with this, they were in a defensive posture. It was either kill or be killed. And rid themselves of their enemies and they killed, notice, 75,000 of those who hated them. That's how big this was. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So if you take the combination of the 75,000 and the 800 and Haman's sons, you have your total there. That's how many people died in this battle. Not one record of any Jewish person dying. I don't know if some people, if there were casualties or not, but it does not say. Now this was done as we wind down on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they, that is those in the provinces outside the capital, rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa, that's the capital, assembled on the 13th day, the 13th and the 14th of the same month. That's in light of what Esther asked for the extra day. And they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Final verse. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month of Adar a holiday. That's because they only fought one day for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. The Jews in the capital make it the next day because they had to fight for two days. And their day of feasting and rejoicing came after that, as you see in verse 17. This is setting the table for the Feast of Purim, or Purim, or maybe Purim, and it is the celebration of how God delivered the Jewish people from Haman's wicked plot. If you Google it, I would encourage you to do so, you'll see it is almost like Mardi Gras in Israel. People are dressed up in clown outfits, kids are dressed up, I will say it's a bit of a party scene, but they, they make these cookies, and it's supposed to rep represent either Haman's ear or pockets, and they celebrate deliverance. You know that just about every major holiday in Israel is a celebration of them being saved from a people group who wanted to kill them. Think of Passover. <laughs> Passover is celebration of deliverance from Egypt, right? And you can go down the list of uh, things that Israel celebrates and it's uh, even if you think of um, what's the uh, holiday in December? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Uh, deliverance from the, uh, the Grecian enemies. And so they send gifts to one another, feasting, uh, joyous food portions to one another. So this, this is very biblical. For those of you who send cookies to people, you are biblical, okay? And I'm just making a personal plea, oatmeal raisin, all right? No, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm, I'm trying to watch my weight. No, never mind. <laughs> Sending gifts to one another to celebrate God's deliverance. Sound familiar? We have many holidays like that, but we have one called Christmas. 
And at Christmas, we send gifts to one another and we bake cookies for the, how many of you, you people, you bake cookies for people and you drop the cookies by the church office. That's why I gained 10 pounds in December. <laughs> It would be wrong not to eat the gifts that people have given in the name of the Lord. Now I'm repenting of that. When you bring a meal to somebody, when you send a gift, when you sit down and have a meal or fellowship with other believers, do you know that every time we gather, it's really a celebration? What are we celebrating? that our ultimate enemy has been defeated. It's not just happened on paper. He came. He conquered. He made an open spectacle of principalities and powers. We are free. We're just headed for heaven. Yeah, we got some bumps in the road, and and Israel still did too. But we know where we're going. The victory has been won. The battle has been won. God's people, it's okay to celebrate. Celebrate good times. Come on. All right, final psalm, says the preacher, and we're done. Psalm 124. Psalm 124. This is beautiful, and I want to leave you with this as an encouragement. If you're in Christ, the victory's been won. You may feel beat up. You may feel a little bit down, or things may be heavy, but you're on the winning team. And here's Psalm 124. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, Psalm 124, 1, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And Father, I thank you that Revelation 21 says that you make new heavens and a new earth. I thank you that it says that you will wipe away tears from every eye. That you will reverse the curse that is on the planet and on the people of the planet, and on everything. And you will reverse the curse, and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more pain, no more tears. The former things would have passed away. And you say, behold, I am making all things new. Right, for these words are faithful and true. Thank you that you have staked your promises You said that you have staked them on your very name and we know that they are good and they're true and they will come to pass. And so may that hope carry us forward in times when our life can be dark and heavy, Lord. May you lift burdens from shoulders right now. May you bring light where there may be some darkness. May you bring healing where there's a need for healing. Thank you that you are so faithful. May you bring emotional healing. May you strengthen those who need some spiritual refreshment tonight, just pour out your spirit on your people, Lord. If you've not met Christ, now is a good time to cry out to him and just say, I repent of my sin and I believe in you, Jesus. 
You're the powerful, highest king. I trust in you. Cry out to him. If you have questions, we, we would like to know, but just place your trust in him. And Father, just as we wrap up tonight, we're so grateful for this book, and we pray that you give us joy and rejoicing in our hearts for all that you have won on our behalf. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, I hope you can look back on times of trial in your life and see how the Lord turned it around for good. And sometimes really we have to wait. We have to wait a while to look back. And you know, from eternity, all of our problems are going to seem so minuscule. They're going to seem like nothing compared to the weight of glory that's coming. So even if you haven't seen everything that you'd like to see, all the pieces put together, Remember from eternity, our problems will be really nothing. We'll find our answers in the face of Christ. Well, this is Pastor Michael Lance, and we are wrapping up the book of Esther this week. So this will be the last chance to get that flash drive of the entire teaching of the majestic book of Esther. And we'll send it to you as a thank you for any donation to the mission of Walk in Truth. You know, when you give to this ministry, you help us to reach more people like you. So a donation of any size, get word to us as quickly as you can. We'll get this flash drive of the entire book of Esther, and hopefully that'll bless your walk, but you can also share it with other people. You can do that as you go to walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. Just click on the donate button, and we deeply appreciate your partnership in the greatest work of all. Well, like I said, we're coming to the end of our series in Esther for such a time as this. Tomorrow you're going to hear the teaching in Esther 9 called Celebrating the Feast of Purim or Purim. It's an awesome way to end the book. We'll look at that more in detail. Until then, God bless you. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people.